The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. My name is Greg Macaluso, and I'm privileged to be a member of this worship team. Our reading today is from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 8 through 13. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go, and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks for that, Greg. Appreciate you reading for us. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Great to be uh, with those of you who are here in person. Also great to be with you uh, who are dialing in. Uh, with the online and live stream options. We consider you as much uh, part of our community today as those who are gathered here. Um, I was so encouraged uh, to hear. It, it seemed like there was, there was at least a moment or two during the singing where the congregation was louder than the band for me uh, in your singing. I, and I think that just points to um, the reality that we're in a season where we're all lo- longing for hope and we're, we're, we're just ready to bellow out these hopeful words that that Advent gives us, that the ancient hymns give us, that the newly written songs give us. And I just, I want to thank you. You know, the Bible talks about uh, how we sing to one another. Uh, I want to thank you for the encouragement that you gave me just by bellowing out the words and bellowing out the songs and music. Um, It really gave me just an extra measure of energy to come up here and preach the gospel, which is also an unspeakable privilege uh, to get to do that. And so, uh, so we're in a, what we're calling an extended uh, Advent series. We feel like it's been an incredibly uh, wearying year, and uh, we thought, you know, what better thing to do than just, just make the Advent series longer uh, for our church, because Advent is, is all about longing, it's all about waiting, it's all about processing the good, beautiful, lovely truths of the gospel in the context of things like disappointment and anticlimax and setback. And so we felt like it was important to just give an extra shot of hope uh, uh, during this season of the year after such a, such a tiring, wearisome year for many. And so we're calling this series A Weary World Rejoices. And we have two what we're calling prescript sermons, and this is the second of those two. Advent actually begins next Sunday. So the four Sundays of Advent, we're, we're going to get all Christmassy uh, for the next four weeks, uh, starts next Sunday. So can't wait to see you 
uh, in those uh, four weeks as well. But what I'd like to do uh, is uh, just begin this sermon, which we're calling The Storm Before the Calm, uh, with an illustration from 2007 in the Washington, D.C. subways. So the Grammy-winning violinist Joshua Bell decided one day that he was going to take his $3.5 million Stradivarius Uh, violin into the Washington, D.C. subways, uh, and he was going to disguise himself by wearing a ball cap, ratty jeans, ratty shirt, and what he did was he played an impromptu 45-minute solo concert uh, in the Washington, D.C. subways, and the cameras caught over a thousand people uh, uh, walking by Joshua Bell as he played that music, and strikingly, Of those thousand or more people, only seven people stopped to listen and pay attention and take it in. How much like the Advent season in America, where we're fixated sometimes more on things like Black Friday and and, and, and other sometimes wonderfully distracting things that, that we miss the message that's in the background music all around us. You know, we go to the malls, we, we go to, uh, you know, we, 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 we turn the radio on for those who still use the radio or, or we choose, you know, whatever the latest popular Spotify playlist is, which is, is Christmas music. And, and it almost serves like background music where we, we, we get distracted away from what's actually being said. Uh, in these wonderful hymns, and, and maybe seven out of a thousand of us will stop and really pay attention and receive it. The gospel is like this. To some, it's the greatest truth that's ever been told in history, that the word became flesh, that God, our creator, became a human being, made his dwelling among us, came here to rescue us from, from the weariness that we experience, came, us, came to rescue us from the worst about ourselves. Greatest news ever comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found, as we sung earlier in the service. And then others, actually most, with the gospel will pass by, either ambivalent, either, either in an ambivalent way or in a hostile way, because the implications of the gospel, uh, while being incredibly comforting, also create a threat, a threat to the status quo, especially my status quo, a threat to my pride, a threat to the sovereignty of self. And so we have to decide, are we going to stop and we're going to listen to the music? And here's Isaiah's situation. He has promised, as God calls him to a life of ministry, he has promised that only one out of the ten people, uh, one out of every ten people in Israel are going to pay any attention to him. The other nine are either going to be hostile or ambivalent toward his message and toward his Ministry. That's something he wasn't accustomed to, which I'll get to in a a second. But there was another time in the New Testament where where another very skilled communicator named Jesus uh, healed 10 people of uh, an incurable disease at the time called leprosy. And and, and Jesus was shocked that only one out of those 10 who were healed came back and said, thank you. And so about one out of ten are responsive and, 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 and the others are like the D.C. subway folks just passing by a masterpiece. 
not even realizing what's in front of them. And so, so what I want to talk about from Isaiah's experience here is three compelling reasons to be the one instead of being one of the nine. To be the one who pays really close attention uh, and in such a way that, that it leads to deep thanksgiving. Those three reasons are wonder, greater gain, and power. And so let's start with wonder. Verse 8 The angel of the Lord says to Isaiah, whom shall I send? Who will go? Who will do this work? And Isaiah says, here am I. Send me. And the the curious thing, the remarkable thing there is Isaiah at that time doesn't even know exactly what it is that he's volunteering for. But he's so struck and so compelled with the vision that he's received of, of God seated on the throne train of his robe, filling the temple, the healing message that he gets from the the angel that that authoritatively says to him, your guilt has been removed, your sin has been atoned for. That's all he needed to say, I'll do anything you ask. I, I will give the rest of my life to whatever you tell me you want me to give the rest of my life to. I don't even need to know the job description. The thing that compelled Isaiah to to, to be that all in with his creator was this. These words, I saw. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw. What did he see? He saw the Lord seated on the throne, train of his robe filled the temple with what? With glory. With glory. This is a Hebrew word, kavod, which means weight. The word glory, whenever you hear the word glory, it's talking about the seismic grandeur of God. You can put it this way. One square millimeter of God weighs more than the entire weight of the whole world. Just one square millimeter of God is heavier than the greatest thing that you could imagine. And if we want a dose of what Isaiah saw, so I doubt there are a whole lot of us in here who would say that they have visibly seen God in the same way that Isaiah did for a moment. But if we want a glimpse, if we want a taste, maybe an appetizer for that same kind of experience, may I suggest one more gift under your tree? A telescope. Get a telescope, wrap it up, give it to all the people uh, you know, who, who you live with, your, your, your roommates, your your family members, whomever, and take turns looking through that thing at whatever you can find up there and out there and and get a good one. Get, Get one with a really strong lens. And here's what you'll see through a telescope. It's right there in Psalm 19, verse one, where it says, the heavens declare the glory. There's the word again, kavod, the weightiness. The heavens declare the weightiness, the heaviness The seismic grandeur of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Now here's where the Hebrew comes in handy as well. The word in Hebrew for handiwork actually means the work of his fingers. The galaxies are a product of God putting to use his own fine motor skills. We do the softest work and sometimes the easiest, most effortless work with our fingers. 
God put all of this into existence with his fingers. You guys, it, it took me hours to get the leaves out of my yard this weekend. And I'm still in physical pain from head to toe from just some leaves. God, with his fingertips, created the galaxies. Tim Keller, in a sermon, put, put it in perspective in this way. Okay, so, so here's one piece of paper. See that? See how thin it is? So, so Tim Keller says that, that if you reduce the distance between the earth and the sun, which is 92 million miles, if you reduce that distance to the thickness of one sheet of paper, and then you realize that the distance between the earth and the nearest star beyond the sun would actually be a stack of papers 70 feet high. And, as if that weren't remarkable enough, the di di diameter of the galaxy in which we live would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. And then he concludes with this, and yet the galaxy in which we live is but a speck of dust to the whole universe. Sit in that for a moment. <laughs> I mean, go home and go for a long walk and just think about that. Think about how enormous the tip of God's pinky is. How do we lose the wonder that Isaiah had recaptured? We, we, how, how do we walk by the glorious music, ambivalent or even hostile toward it? Isn't it because we have this way about us of domesticating God, of shrinking him to the size of our own concerns, of, of shrinking him to the size of our own goals and ambitions, of shrinking him to the size of whatever it is that distracts us from his glory, from his seismic grandeur. What this is is an invitation to stop domesticating God, to, to stop turning him into a little American and realize how enormous he is. Nurture the practice of noticing again. When you go for a walk in the beautiful woods of Nashville, or maybe some of you will end up at the beach, or maybe some of you this, this coming weekend will end up picking up leaves, take a moment and pick up a leaf and just look at the detail in that thing. And think about how much effort you put forth for these leaves to keep growing on your trees and then be reminded of your creator. So this is babe in the straw that we're talking about, little gentle Jesus, meek and mild. His fine motor skills, his tiny little fingers made the universe. It reminds me of that wonderful song that we'll no doubt hear a million times this season that Buddy Green wrote. It goes like this. Mary, did you know that your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day rule the nations? Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb? That sleeping child you're holding is the great I am? Wonder. Wonder. Secondly, greater gain. When Isaiah says, send me, 
Another reason why those two words are so significant is because of how costly those two words will end up being for Isaiah. He will lose his life eventually over those two words. And in between his uttering those two words and the day that he loses his life by being sawn in two by people who are hostile toward his message, his ministry is extremely difficult. It says, though a tenth remain." What, what does that mean? It means that he's going to lose 90% of the people on day one. On day one, he's going to lose 90% of the people. So it, it's as if Tim Keller or Matt Chandler, or you know, pick whoever your favorite preacher is. They moved to Nashville to, to take over the leadership of the largest church in Nashville, whatever church that is. And you know, everybody expects, well, that church is going to be I mean, we thought it was big. That church is going to be huge now. Tim Keller, Matt Chandler coming to town. And then to everybody's surprise, after their first Sunday, the size of the church shrinks by 90%. And all they're left with is, is 10% of what was there before. That's a bit like it was for Isaiah. Before God called Isaiah to this task, he was a prodigy in Israel. The, the, the Hebrew, uh, the Jewish literature tells us that he was the nephew of a king. And so he ran in royal circles. And not only this, he was highly esteemed for his, his gift package, his skill set. Especially among elites. He was on all the VIP lists. He got the invitations to the green rooms and all of that. Why? Because he's artistic. He's a celebrated scholar. He's poetic. He's a skilled rhetorical genius. As we can see, you know, as anyone can see if you read through the entire book. And what he's volunteering for here, as a young protege with his whole life and career ahead of him, is professional suicide for the rest of his life. There is no getting back to normal. You know, we talk about, oh, when a vaccine comes... When this happens or that happens, there is no back to normal scenario for Isaiah. There was no vaccine for the things that Isaiah was called to endure. For him, it's what Bonhoeffer would later call the cost of discipleship. And in his book, in Bonhoeffer's book, by that same name, The Cost of Discipleship, he starts it with these words When Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's the first thing you do. When you give God a yes, your yes is that you die. It's the first thing that you do. And then you live like you never imagined living before. What do we mean by dying? Well, for Isaiah, it meant dying to status, dying to upward career mobility, dying to who knows what else. But for others among us, us ordinary people who are not the nephew of a king, it means dying to things like a habit of lying. You know, many of us, before we came to know Christ and were called into the family of God, uh, we got what we wanted largely by telling lies. Whether it was in our business or whether it was in our relationships or what have you, we protected the true narrative by putting forth a false one 
in order to get what we wanted. And so we died to that habit. Or when God called us, we died to the habit of gossip. We died to to the notion that, that it's okay to hold on to a grudge. We died to our lack of empathy, our lack of willingness to put ourselves in somebody else's shoes and show compassion for their situation. We, we died, perhaps, to the divorce plans that we had. We died to the notion that Sunday mornings belong to us. We died to the notion that we could keep all the money that we make. And all of a sudden, we're being called upon by the Lord to give at least 10% of it away. Signs of faith, signs of transformation is, number one, there are things that you have given up permanently, and you can list them. Doesn't mean you don't, you don't slip back into bad habits every now and then, but, but as a habit, you've given up several things permanently to follow Jesus. And the second sign is you have zero regrets about it. Zero regrets. Why? Because the glory of the Lord is a greater gain than anything that, that might come to us Otherwise, you know, the great Welsh preacher, Martin, Lloyd, Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, before he went into ministry, he was actually a very prominent physician. You know, he, he was the type of physician who might be, you know, a higher up in, uh, you know, the Vanderbilt network or, or St. Thomas or what have you. Like he, he would be maybe running the hospital or the chief surgeon or, or, or the chief whatever, he ran in elite circles, made a ton of money, was highly esteemed in, in the medical profession. And then sometime midlife, he, he felt a burden and, and a sense of call to go into the pastoral ministry. He didn't know exactly what that meant. But what, what it ended up meaning for him was that he would leave behind his elite way of life uh, to initially pastor a small congregation of blue-collar fishermen and women on the shores of Wales. And at a later date, a reporter asked him, did you ever regret leaving all of that for this? And, and, and it's as if he got a bit irritated, almost angry at the question. So much so that he said, let me be clear with you. As if to say, you listen to me, reporter. He went on to say, I gave up nothing. And I gained everything. And that's not at all to say that that you know, leaving the medical career to become a minister is like this super virtuous thing. Like for some people, the serving God will mean leaving the ministry in order to become a medical professional, right? I mean, we talk about this in, in you know, good, robust biblical faith and work theology. Anybody who's called to, to a creative endeavor or a restorative endeavor, anything that, 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 that creates something and puts it out into the world for, for the better flourishing of people, places, and or things, or, re, or, or does work that redeems and restores and brings healing to people, places, and or things, is just as much God's work as mine is. Okay, so I want to be really, really clear that Lloyd-Jones wasn't saying it's better to be a minister than it is to be a doctor. But what he, is, what he was saying is it's much better to, to pay a big cost even if you have to, to have something even greater. A sense that you're right where God wants you uniquely to be. Now, this is where God, everything in here describes where uniquely he wants every one of us. 
You wanna know what God's will is for your life? You start here. You wanna know what the call of the glory of the Lord is on your life? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, put everything under that first. And then secondly, uh, adopt the posture of Lloyd-Jones. Wherever God has me, that's the perfect place. I gave up nothing and I gained everything. Think about Mary in the Advent accounts. The angel of the Lord comes to her and says, you're going to have a baby without a husband and you're going to have to tell the story to the world that the Holy Spirit made you pregnant? Okay. So I'm going to be pregnant before I'm ever with a man. And of course the implication is I'm going to be wearing the scarlet letter A on the front of me for adultery for the rest of my life. Because nobody's going to believe this stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's probably going to be a consequence. Oh, and I'm going to have to watch my firstborn son die a violent death in front of my very eyes at the hands of megalomaniac brutes. Yeah, that's part of the picture too. What does Mary say? May it be done to me as you have said, O angel of the Lord. Or you can go back to the Old Testament. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's three friends, right? Another violent, brutal king, Nebuchadnezzar, says, you will worship the statue that's been erected in my honor, and if you do not, I'm going to throw you into a massive fire pit, and I'm going to turn the heat up so hot, the pain is going to be unimaginable. And they say to the king, we've got a greater glory than you, O king. They speak to him respectfully. They don't insult him. They speak to him respectfully, but they say to him, O king, live forever. We will not bow to the statue, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and the Lord your God alone. And and, and by the way, our God will rescue us from this furnace of fire. And then they say, but even if he doesn't, we will worship him. A greater gain. You know, the famous martyred, eventually missionary, Jim Elliott said, said it this way. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Wonder, greater gain, and then finally power. Power. I mean, this job description looks terrible. It looks like he's, he's moved, you know, 50 levels down the org chart. Uh, it, it looks like he's moved from, from the top of society to, to the very bottom dregs of society. The optics on Isaiah's life are that he's going to be weakened, he's going to be defeated, but, but, but somehow as would later happen with the Apostle Paul around the thing he calls his thorn in the flesh. Isaiah is given a a redemptive imagination for what flourishing could look like even if nothing ever gets better. But first, Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about his thorn in the flesh. And we don't know exactly what it was, but we know that it tormented him. 
And we know that it tormented him so much that he went back to God three separate times and it says that he pleaded or as if he begged God to remove the thorn. And and, and then God comes in and he says, you know what, I'm not going to take away the thorn, but what I am going to do is I'm going to give you something greater than the thorn. I'll give you a greater affection and a greater relief that that, that will actually put the pain of the thorn in its proper perspective. I'm going to give you myself. And and, and Paul emerges from that experience uh, saying words like, God's power has been made perfect in my weakness. And that is why I have come to actually even delight, he says, in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Because I've discovered through this thorn experience that when I'm weak, that's when the power of God rests upon me. I would dare say that most of you who came to faith in Jesus Christ later on in your life, you did it through some form of crisis, some form of emotional letdown, some set of circumstances that, that, that felt tragic to you at the time or that, that felt like I've, I've, I've lost control. Uh, you know, I, I can't control this relationship. I can't control this addiction. I can't control my sorrow. And that's what brought you to Christ. That's certainly the kind of thing that brought me to Christ. Loneliness brought me to Christ. And, and for many of you, I, I, I imagine it was, it was from the valleys that you got most interested in what Christ has to offer. But what is this power that Isaiah receives? It's the power to be all alone. It's the power to be isolated. You know this whole vision. He's, we get no indication that there's anybody else in the temple but him and the angels and the glory of God. He's a pastor all by himself in a sanctuary. And let me tell you, one of, the, if one of, the, things, one of the things that COVID and 2020 has taught me, it is, it is the worst feeling in the world to be a pastor preaching from up here and nobody's in the room. We had a few months like that. It was terrible. It's terrible. And why do we do it? Because, because we had faith that something was happening on the other side of that camera that made the word that we were preaching of value in people's lives. And, and some of them may be people we never meet. Others may be people that we're in life with and, and, and we'll get, you know, hopefully that glorious return of, of the full community. Like right now, it's like 35% of us are, are back in person. The other 65% still out there, um, you know, kind of wrestling the, the, the implications of COVID and dialing in through a camera. But it was so much harder when there was nobody in the room. Port Nate Tasker, his very first Sunday was COVID Sunday number one. He didn't just lose 90%. We lost 100% of your faces for a while. And, and, and for people who do their ministry up here, like, like our incur- I was telling somebody, somebody earlier, after the earlier service, who, who is clearly um, on a regular basis uh, just having these, these moments in our worship services of, of just deep affection for God. And I said, you have no idea what kind of ministry that is to somebody like me. That there are people like you enjoying God in a year like this. And you're wearing it. That means so much more to me, possibly, than, than any sermon I could preach to you means to you. And he's like, I thought I was just worshiping. I thought, well, you were ministering as well. 
The power to persevere. You know, we've got 35% of our people back that we can see their faces. Isaiah, at this time, in this moment, had none. And then later, it would just be 10%. And yet he perseveres. And he, but he does ask the question that every struggling believer has every right to ask. It's in verse 11. How long, O Lord? How long? And here's the answer that God gives. It's not the one Isaiah is looking for. Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses are without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many. Oh. Translation. In your lifetime, young man, there will be no discernible payoff to your here I am, send me. None. No vaccine for this. And now that Isaiah has clarity, does he change his mind? Does he have a second thought? Does he say, when are things going to get back to normal again? No, he doesn't. Because getting back to normal, he realizes after he's seen the glory of the Lord, getting back to normal, he recognizes is, is, is such a small vision for the good life. Such a small vision. Having God and nothing else is the biggest life that you can possibly live. And having everything, but, but, but being ambivalent toward God, you, you are so freaking poor and you don't even see it. You've got nothing. If you've got everything this world can offer, all the status and the wealth and privilege and elite st you know, stuff that Isaiah had, but, but not be caught up in who God is, you've got nothing. You are as poor as dirt. But with God and nothing else, you've got it all. You've got it all. Yeah, this morning, it's been a joy to look out and, and see people who've lost spouses, who've overcome addictions, who are in very, very difficult places in their marriage and with their kids and with their careers, nodding in a way that's probably going to give them whiplash to these truths. The valley is a glorious place for those who know they need God. Perseverance. What is our, where does our redemptive imagination take us with respect to COVID? I hope it takes us to where my 35-year-old friend, Brian Maynard, who died of cancer, at age 35, where it took him. The glory of the Lord took him. He had this settled peace about him, and I didn't quite understand it. And so one day, as he was in the process of dying, I said, what, what is, what's your secret? Why am I more cynical about things than you are? Why am I more grumpy and easily rattled than you are? And he says, yeah, I don't really know. I, I guess just along the way, I've learned to thank God for the good that I cannot see. And then Hebrews 11 came to mind. Faith is the evidence of things that we hope for and being certain of things that we don't see. What are we not seeing in this year that, that, that could actually spring us to, 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 to greater heights and, and even take us to a place of settled joy? We can thank God for the good that we cannot see, and maybe let's practice that around our Thanksgiving tables as much as we can this week. 
The reason why we can thank God for the good that we cannot see is because of the good that we can, the good that he has shown us. And what is the good? Well, I mean, Isaiah for Isaiah, it's there in verse 13. A tenth remains. I still have 10% of the people. I've, I've still got a congregation. It's not what I'd always dreamed of, but, but, but I've got a community. We've got each other. We've got community. We've got the ability to hear each other sing and, and, to, and to boot off of that and be encouraged and receive encouragement from that and give encouragement with that. But the other thing he says is that there's still the stump from the tree that's been knocked down. And the holy seed is his stump. What, what, what on earth is he talking about? Well, let's talk about a seed first, and I'll, I'll wrap up with this. I picked up this acorn on, on, on my uh, walk the other day. So I'm like, this is going to be good. I'm going to show this thing to everybody. God made this thing, and God's in this thing. You know how much power resides in this? How much latent potential resides in this little thing? Hey, Todd, catch. Good catch. With his little fingertips... Todd just caught something that has the ability to become a tree to provide shade for an entire neighborhood and aesthetic for an entire region and, 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 and also could produce more acorns that could become a forest which could produce more forests which could blanket the earth with oak trees that give us the oxygen we need in order to survive that, that create the lumber that that that, that makes our houses and, and, and burns in the wintertime so that we're, we're warm and does all those wonderful things that wood does. Todd has got the power of every forest in the world between his fingertips right now. Let me throw that back. And now it's back between my fingertips and I can't even hold on to this. But I think you get the point. When the Bible talks about a seed talks about Jesus. The first presentation of the gospel is in Genesis 3.15. It's in the Old Testament, not the New. The seed of the woman who's born at Christmas time will crush the head of the serpent. He will deal a death blow to everything that the serpent intends and everything the serpent creates to wreak havoc on the earth. The seed will crush the head of the serpent and he will come to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. This is true for everyone who will believe in him. Everyone who asks the question, how long? The promise is, look, all you got right now to hang on to is an acorn, but the earth is gonna be blanketed with oak trees. It's gonna fill your lungs with the best oxygen and it's going gonna, it's gonna to build, you know, I go to prepare a place for you. Maybe I'll use some lumber that comes from an acorn like this to build that glorious place that I'm building for you in the new heaven and the new earth. You know, Isaiah would say later on, no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has in store for those who fear him, who love him, and who wait for him. I don't think anybody in the Bible talks more about waiting than Isaiah. And for him, waiting is congruent not with despair, it's congruent with hope with anticipation because he knows that, that, that the response to, to his here am I send me is, is God saying to him here am I trust me lean on me believe in me and, and, and would you look at Isaiah now stuff that he never saw in his lifetime we got people in our church that name their sons after this guy you look around the world, you've got about 3 billion people who, are, who have, have, have been exposed to what he wrote. 
Three billion just today. Handel's Messiah, we've talked about how that is based on Isaiah's prophecy. But here's the last thing I'll say. The Holy Seed, Jesus, what was his profession? He was a woodworker, wasn't he? He created tables. And the most memorable thing that Jesus did with a table was he served bread and he served a cup of wine to his disciples. Which brings us to our moment where we get to do that with him as well. Before we do this, will you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for the seed who will crush the serpent's head. Thank you that in you and in your glory, there's so much wonder, there's so much gain, there's so much power. Would you enable us to thank you in these things for the good that we cannot quite see but it's good that we can anticipate seeing because of the good that you've already shown us in visions like the one Isaiah relays to us and of course in the vision of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that you've recorded through the testimony of eyewitnesses for which we also thank you. And it's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Well, please stand and we'll profess our faith together as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. What right do we have to dine at the table of Jesus? As children of God, through faith in Jesus, we have every right to dine at his table. What do we mean by this? We mean that Jesus came not for the strong, but for the weak, not for the righteous, but for sinners, not for the self-sufficient, but for those who know they need rescue, to all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares, to all who are weak and frail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior, Jesus welcomes into his circle, adopts into his family, and reserves a place at his table. For he is the mighty friend of sinners, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the indefensible, and the justifier of those who have no excuses left. Amen.